Now on to the message. If you would, I would like you to grab your Bible or your scriptures, open up to Luke chapter 19. We're going to be there in a minute, but just by way of explanation, especially for those of you who are new with us, we are still in the season of Lent, and we have closed up our series on fundamentals of Jesus, and now we're turning to the final week of Christ as we head towards Easter. But we're still in Lent, and Lent is, uh, for a little bit of background on that, it's about 47, 48 days long, um, but we say that it's 40 days because we don't count the Sundays during Lent. So traditionally, what's most what most Christians do who practice Lent is they give something up during Lent, um, during this time, that they know, they know whatever they're giving up is a distraction for them from following Christ. Or they try to practice something new in their life that will help them follow Christ more closely. So and then the Sundays in Lent are traditionally viewed as feast days. So if you gave up chocolate or alcohol or social media or Netflix or caffeine during Lent, then you might partake of those things on Sundays, um, obviously in moderation. But So the Sundays don't count. Um, so today on Sunday, if you're watching this on Sunday, you can have those things, whatever it is that you gave up. So um, this is a season where we take the things that we indulge in or overindulge in and we lay those things down. We lay them down for the purpose of experiencing uh, an even deeper way of, of looking at resurrection that comes at Easter. So this season leads us, in other words, into Resurrection Sunday. So laying things down helps us to take a step towards experiencing resurrection in a new way. A lot of Christians use the season of Lent to find ways to serve other people more. And um, obviously, because we are meeting in this way and because of the, the uh, virus and all the health mandates that are out, they, we have to be creative with that. How are we going to serve each other and how are we going to serve um, our neighbors and our community and um, the least of these? Um, because we want to put others first. And Lent is a good way traditionally to do that. You use this season as a catalyst to help you learn how to serve others if you're not good at that and to serve ourselves less. So kind of the idea that John the Baptist states when Jesus comes on the scene finally in the Gospels, John the Baptist says, he, Jesus, must increase and I must decrease. So that's what we're kind of following there. So also a tradition in Lent is that we become more generous. Sometimes uh, uh, covertly uh, giving things to others who need them and maybe you don't want them to know that you're doing that but sometimes overtly maybe some of you um, trying to accept the challenge of scripture to practice the spiritual discipline and act of worship that is tithing your income maybe you'll try this for the first time during Lent so uh, but this is a season where we really work and put ourselves behind others and help serve others first so that we can understand what it means to be more generous and give things up and lay things down so that we can understand resurrection for what it is and celebrate it as when we get to resurrection so we can celebrate it as the party that it really is. Because the message, message of resurrection is really, it's a message worth shouting. It is not a message that we whisper uh, and that we um, don't really tell anybody. This is, this is a big deal. So. And here's the thing about Easter. Yeah, it's it's about Jesus giving his life on the cross, um, but it's also about how he conquered death for you and for your hope and freedom. And so you can have the healing power that raised Jesus from the dead. That is the very real message that we proclaim at Easter. And I want you to join me in that this season. So 
Uh, that's the background of what we're doing in Lent, and we're headed for Easter. And now we're starting this new series today on the last week of Christ. And what we're going to do each Sunday from now until Easter is we're going to take one day during Holy Week, which is the last week of Jesus's life before he was killed on the cross and his resurrection. So Holy Week is that period of time. And he's making his way to Jerusalem during that week. And he's in Jerusalem during that week. And we're going to examine examine what happened uh, on each one of those days and see what the implications are for our lives. So today we're starting on this Sunday with day one of Holy Week in the last week of Christ's life. And we're going to start in Luke chapter 19. So uh, beginning in verse 28, it says this. And Jesus had said, after Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And as he approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples saying to them, and then uh, he's going to say some stuff, and we'll get to that in a minute. Um, before we get to what he said, I want to set the stage so that we're all on the same page. And I want to show you a photo. This is a photo of the Mount of Olives. And um, all, all along the hillside in this photo is a, it, what you see there in the photo is a cemetery. These graves have been there since before the time of Christ. And they are there mainly uh, because the tradition says that when the Messiah finally comes or returns, his feet will touch down first on the Mount of Olives. And so these people, when they die, they, they want to be really close to where the Messiah is going to show up first so that when he does, they can be the first ones that come out of the ground. So... If you look really close at this picture, you can see a brick wall that weaves its way down through there. And in between those walls is a road. And this is the road from Bethphage and Bethany from those towns that leads to Jerusalem and right up to the Temple Mount. The reason they put the walls up alongside this road is because if a Jew touches a grave, remember there's graves on either side, if a Jew touches a grave for any reason, then they are unclean. And if you're trying to get to Jerusalem to celebrate uh, one of these big um, feast days, uh, one of these big um, uh, ceremonies that they're going to uh, celebrate, like Passover. Uh, uh, you become, or Pentecost or something like that, if you touch a grave, then you become unclean. And if you become unclean, you might as well just stop and give up. You can't, you can't go participate. So that's, that's that photo. Now let me show you another photo. This is the road going down from the Mount of Olives, and you can see the Temple Mount in the distance, and you can see the Dome of the Rock there, and that other wall in front of the Dome of the Rock has a gate in it over on the right-hand side, and that's called the Eastern Gate, and that gate is the gate the Messiah is supposed to go through when he ascends to the Temple Mount, and so my point in telling you that, uh, telling you all of that, is that we know down to the minutest details that this road is the road that Jesus rode his donkey on when he comes into Jerusalem. And here's how we know that. A few years ago, they had to tear the asphalt up to do some repairs on this road. And one of the side, uh, on one side of the wall, when they were tearing everything up, they found graves. And on the other side of that wall, they found graves. But when they tore up the road in the middle, guess what they found? no graves. So, which means it has always been a road. Nobody was buried there. There was nothing underneath that road. Um, so here's another photo I want to show you. And this is, this is just, it's a donkey. These, this is what the donkeys in Israel look like. This is what Jesus would have written, would have ridden on. Um, and the question is why, why would he have, why did he ride on a donkey? And we're going to get to that in a minute, but I want you to have uh, that picture of the donkey as a visual. So but first, let's continue in Luke 19 uh, with what Jesus said to his disciples. So he said, 
Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say, the Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it, just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? You know, what the heck are you doing? And they replied, the Lord needs it, like you do. And they brought it to Jesus. Apparently, that answer was sufficient for the owners, and they, they brought it to Jesus. They threw their, the passage says in verse 35, they threw their cloaks on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. And when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. So back to the picture of the donkey. There are a couple of layers to this. Um, uh, the, the first one is the cultural layer um, for when a king enters a city. So uh, Jesus what you need to remember here, and we've talked about this before uh, on Sundays during different teaching series, but Jesus is claiming to be a king, a specific king, the king of the Jews. And that's the thing that eventually gets him killed. So when someone asks you why Jesus died on the cross, yes, there is all the stuff about Jesus saving us from our sin, conquering death, for sure, all of that. But historically, from a historian's point of view, the charges that are written against him, for example, on the sign that they hung on the cross, that sign says he's the king of the Jews. Well, that's the accusation they made against him. He gets killed for claiming to be a king, and his message of the kingdom that he is going to lead as king, is that is the thing that gets him crucified. So I want you to be clear about that, because a king entering a city, it matters. Um, and how a king comes into the city makes all the difference. So, for example, if a king is going to meet with another king, or if a king's riding to, into a city uh, and there's no one else there and he's going to come to conquer it, he's coming for a time uh, of war, he's ready for war, they want to appear strong and dominant and defiant. And so for all the kings of that time, when they wanted to appear that way, like, like I'm, on, I'm here to tell you I'm in charge or something like that, they would always ride into the city on a horse that was white, kind of like, this is my noble steed and I'm here and you can't mess with me, okay? Don't mess with me is the message. If they want to appear, they want to appear ready to take on anybody and everybody that, that who's going against them. On the other hand, if a, king if a king comes with terms of peace, he would ride a donkey. This is what they would do back then. So, um, Jesus is doing this, and he is making a statement about the kind of kingdom he wants to usher in. It's a kingdom of peace. It's not a kingdom of power and authority and dominance. That is not the kingdom that Jesus is ushering in. And we know this because a little bit later in, this, in the scriptures, in this passage, he says, if you only knew what would bring you peace, uh, in verse 42. This is what Jesus always wanted. If you read the Gospels and you look at what he is doing uh, culturally and socially amongst all the people, he's trying to bring peace. Everyone in Israel wanted peace too, but they wanted it by overthrowing the Romans. And Jesus is saying, that is not how we're going to get there. That version of power doesn't work. The second layer to this picture of the donkey is when you look in the Old, Old Testament, you look at the scriptures, the text. Um, you want to get into the Hebrew Bible. Why is Jesus riding a donkey? The clue is always in the text because Jesus is the living word. He is in there. Everything that he does and everything that he says is in the text. It's always in the scriptures. So if you go back to the Hebrew Bible in the Old Testament text, if you would turn to Zechariah chapter 9 with me. 
And starting in verse 9, it says this in Zechariah 9. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. So what this tells us is that Jesus is, yeah, he's fulfilling prophecy, but he's also making a very strong statement about who he is and what he's, what he's going to do, what he's trying to accomplish, and the kind of kingdom that he wants to usher in. What he's trying to say is that there's only, there's only one kingdom. It's his kingdom. And you can try all these other ways to get peace, but they are not going to accomplish that for you. That It'll never happen. They're not going to deliver on the promises uh, that, that all these other kings and kingdoms and conquerors have made about bringing peace. Uh, the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, for example. So he's making a statement that there's only one kingdom. And later he's going to say, uh, we're going to get to this um, before we get to Easter, he's going to say there's only one way to access this kingdom. It's through him. So if you read on in Luke 19, verse 37 is where I'm at now. But when he came, it says this, when he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And I, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. So that sounds cool, if the stones will cry out. And it's a metaphor that he's using, but why, why is he using that particular metaphor? Well, there's a clue, again, in the text, in the Hebrew scriptures. So if you turn back, um, keep your finger in Luke 19, we already looked at Zechariah 9, now turn to Habakkuk, which is a little bit before that in the Old Testament, um, one of the latter prophets in your Old Testament. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 2, starting in verse 9, uh, we'll go through verse 11. It says this, Woe to him who builds his house by unjust gain, setting his nest on high to escape the clutches of ruin. You have plotted the ruin of many peoples, shaming your own house and forfeiting your life. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. The stones of the wall will cry out, and the beams of the woodwork will echo it. So what are we talking about here? Jesus makes this statement about the stones are going to cry out. It's, he's, he is um, using this scripture, which would have been in these experts of the law, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the priests. They would have known what he was saying here. Jesus is making a very clear indictment against the priests. He's like, I'm talking to you. And how do we know that? Because the first thing he's going to do after he gets into the temple, when he rides up there, what's the first thing he does? He goes in there, he starts turning over the tables and driving people out of the temple. The priests of the temple were called Sadducees, and they didn't believe, in case you didn't know this, um, the Pharisees believed in an afterlife, um, but the Sadducees did not. And they're the priests in the temple. So you think about this for a minute. Israel is a god governed society. He is at the top. He's like the top ruler, the top judge, and everything kind of comes down from there. And the next people on the list are the priests who are supposed to speak for and represent him and tell people about him. Um, and that's an important job, right? They need to get it right and not abuse that power. If you are an instrument of that particular God to particular people and you don't believe that there's anything after this life, what are you going to try and do? Well, I'm going to tell, I'm going to get all I can. Why? Because God is good to those who are good and he's bad to those who are bad. That was the thinking. And so their, their MO was, let me show you how God, how good God is to me. I'm going to take advantage of you 
And what was happening was that the temple was absolutely, totally and completely morally bankrupt. These priests were taking advantage of everyone. So the whole nation, led by the priests and from the temple, representing God, was supposed to be a light to the whole world. And it wasn't. And the leaders of the temple were building magnificent homes for themselves with, to, the, to the order of they had, they had hot and cold water and indoor plumbing in the first century. And they had vacation homes down in Jericho. Um, just unbelievable. They had all that while the people that they are supposed to be leading to God are starving to death. Uh, because the temple isn't doing what it was supposed to do, which was to take care of people. So here's how it works. There are only three days where you're supposed to celebrate uh, different um, uh, uh, holy days in Jerusalem. And if you're scattered all over the world as a Jew, because your parents, during some form of persecution or during your life, you had to move to a different place. It's called It was called the diaspora, where they would spread and move um, to different parts of the Roman Empire. But you wanted to come back for one of these festivals if you could, or more if you could, but you're probably only going to come back to Jerusalem once in your whole life. And it costs a lot to do that. Think about how long it would take to get there. You're going to stay for that week or however long the festival is, and then you're going to um, return. But you have to like set up things to get done while you're away. You have to save up money to get there, all that kind of stuff. Okay, so the three main holy days were Pentecost, Passover, and Sukkot. Um, but let's say you're going to Passover and you got a lot, you have to travel a long way and you have to plan that type of travel back then for many years. And you're going to say no to a lot of things to save money for the trip to Jerusalem because Jerusalem is God's city. It's the holy city. It's where God lives. And you're going to make this trek with your clan and your family. And as you approach the city, when you finally get there, there are six gates that you can come through. And as you get closer to your clan leader is supposed to begin leading everybody in worship. And there are, everybody's arriving kind of around the same time. And as clan leaders come into the city, they're all supposed to be doing this. So then their, their clan would then follow and, and worship as well. And everybody's singing. And as you get closer and closer in, it's getting louder and louder and louder. And here's a thought on the perspective regarding Passover. Uh, the, the Jewish historian Josephus says that uh, there were 250,000 lambs slain in one day during Passover. And the Torah then says to us that if you, if you read the Torah, it says one lamb could feed about 10 people, which means it's likely that sometimes at these festivals, at these high holy days, there could have been up to about 2.5 million people there to celebrate for one day. Just think about, think about that worship. Think about that many people singing outside. It's just unbelievable. So the first thing you have to do as you enter the city is you got, if you're there for Passover, you got to do mikvah, which is the ceremonial washing you have to do to become clean, to be able to participate in the festival, in the party, in the sacrifices and everything. So before you can enter the temple grounds, you have to do mikvah. And every, here's the deal. The Sadducees owned every single ceremonial washing place in the city. So guess what they do? To go to the ceremonial washing place and do the ceremonial washing, you, you have to use their place to do it and they charge you money. How much are they going to charge you? You've just come from like hundreds of miles away and they say, oh, it's going to cost this much. They're going to gouge you. And what are you going to do? You're going to say no? Well, if you don't do mikvah, you can't go to the Temple Mount. You can't go and celebrate in this, in this worship time uh, if you don't do mikvah. And so you're going to pay whatever they say right? 
and you've been like planning this for years. What do you do now? now? Here's another thing about the Sadducees. They believed that no graven image could be on the Temple Mount, which included coins. They had their own, so they made their own currency that they used in the Temple. And this is the whole money changers thing, right? So they wouldn't take your, if you read your text about Jesus changing, flipping the tables of the money changers. So the Sadducees wouldn't take your money because it had an image on it. It had the image of Caesar on it. So a nice Sadducee would come up to you and say, okay, well, if you want to have money here to spend in the temple to do the things you need to do for the celebration, then you need to exchange your currency for our currency. What do you think the exchange rate was? These guys, they're just there to rob you and take advantage of you in this exchange. And so then on top of that, when you leave at the end of the time, at the end of the festival, nobody in the rest of the Roman Empire accepts the Temple Mount currency. So before you leave, if you've exchanged all your money for Temple Mount currency, you have to exchange it back to the Roman currency. And again, the exchange rate is in the favor of these Sadducees, of, of the temple priests. So that's not even the end. Uh, to make it even worse, the, you would likely save up, you would save and raise a lamb for many years to, to for probably the, over the course of a year to take it with you. And you would, you would have this lamb and take care of it and make sure that nothing happened to it. You wouldn't even let it walk on the way to Jerusalem. You'd carry it, put it on a cart or wagon or something like that because it needed to be perfect. It needed to be without blemish when you brought it to the temple. Uh, so you have this lamb that you've cared for and you've spent all this money on and everything and you have to take it to the temple for sacrifice and the priest has to inspect it to make sure that it has no blemish. So they take it away from you to inspect it without you seeing the inspection. And while they do that, of course, they give it a little welt, like pinch it somewhere and bring it back out and say, this red lamb has this red spot on it, you know, um, and it, it's a good lamb, but it's not quite perfect. So, you know, you know what we're going to do for you? You know, like, we'll take this lamb off your hands, but if you want to pay us a little, um, you know, or if you want, you can keep your lamb. But we have this, you know, over here in the corner, we have this, you know, pen of pre-certified, pre-owned lambs over here that are all without blemish. You know, it's kind of like a seedy car dealer going to a car dealership, which we can all relate to is, you know, if you've bought a car, not fun. So, then you can buy this lamb over here. And of course, you're there to do this sacrifice and participate in the festival. So you're going to pay whatever they tell you it's going to cost, whatever they want. They can name, they just get the name of the price. So here's this time that you're supposed to be in, enjoying and living to its utmost so that you can worship the God that you love. It's supposed to be this incredible experience. And it turns out to be miserable. And that's what the temple was doing, trying it, the temple believed that it was the accumulation of wealth that would make them happy and give them peace. And they could use that wealth to their advantage and play the game of Rome or whatever they thought, however they justified it. But it didn't work. So later in Luke 19, if you keep reading, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over it. He says, if the, he says these stones are going to cry out. These, these stones would cry out. Here's one more picture. These are, the, these are the stones of the actual temple at the bottom of the Temple Mount today. And when archaeologists dug this out, they left it as a reminder of, of what had been. And it's a reminder of what it means to pursue the kingdom by your own means. Um, and here's where, where we start getting more introspective about our spiritual lives and all this. In the end, you can give your energy and your time to anything that you choose. But if you choose not to engage with the one kingdom, according to Jesus, he says, even the rocks are going to cry out. 
there's just one kingdom and there's only one way to access it. Um, and, the, you know, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, they have a long uh, history of ignoring what God want, wanted to have happen. If, you know, if I could take one story, go back to Numbers 14, where you have um, Moses and, and, the, and the Hebrew people have come out of Egypt, out of slavery, and they come to the promised land. And God says, I want you to take it. I want you to take it now. And I want you to do what I say. And if you remember the story, he sends these spies in, 12 spies, one from each tribe. And um, they all come back and two of them, Joshua and Caleb, are like, we can do this. Let's do it. Let's do what God says. And the other 10 are like, no way. We're going to get crushed. And, and God is ticked off and he comes down to the tent of meeting and he says, how long am I going to have to put up with these people, Moses? How many signs do I have to do to convince them, to prove to them that if they just will trust me, that it's all going to be okay and I'll take care of them. Just do what I ask you to do and I'm going to show up and I can do more than you can possibly imagine. But what it says is that um, if you read that story in Numbers 14, um, the ones responsible for spreading the bad report who said these guys are going to crush us, they're struck down and only Joshua and Caleb survive. And after that happens, the people repent. They're like, oh my gosh, we did this wrong. We should have listened to Joshua and Caleb. We should have done what Moses said. And so they're like, we're gonna, we repent. We can do it now. So they go up into the highland and they're like, we're going to take out these guys in the promised land. We're going to take it over. And Moses says, don't do it. Don't do it. Uh, he's like, you're going to, the, the problem is that now that you've disobeyed, there are consequences to your actions. And that's an important lesson to learn. That's the same thing for us. Just because you repent of your wrongdoing doesn't mean that you don't have to live with the consequences. Um, Moses said to them, why are you, why are you disobeying and going to go off and do this on your own, your own way? You think you can take this holy land without him? The Lord is not with you. You're going to fall by the sword is what it says. So they're trying to engage in God's kingdom. Uh, their own way, and it doesn't work. And then hundreds of years later, at the time of Jesus, they're still trying to do it by gouging their own people left and right and thinking that if they um, kind of collude with the Romans in some way, shape, or form, that they're going to usher in this kingdom and the Messiah will finally show up and he's going to look a certain way. And so when they look at Jesus, they go, mm -mm, you're not it. There's a lot more that we could say about this, and we're going to take each day at a time in Holy Week as the Sundays progress towards Easter, but I want to leave you with some implications. So uh, and, and these are really simple. So, of course, now that you're watching this on video, you can you can kind of go back and repeat these questions if I say them too quickly. Uh, and you can pause it afterwards so that you can write it down if you'd like, especially in the notebooks that we gave all of you over the last couple weeks that we want you to fill up during Lent um, so you can go back and examine those things and see what God's saying to you. But uh, implication number one is this. Lent is a season of reflection that invites you, all of us to examine what parts of us need to die so that something much better can come to life? Um, what, what parts of us that we think will bring us peace, the things that we do, what pursuits do we have in our lives, the things that we are giving ourselves to and spending a lot of time on, um, where we are really just trying to get God's blessing our own way? instead of his way. So that's the, the first implication that Lent is this season of reflection that invites us to examine what parts of us need to die. And that's really hard and it might be something that we need to talk to each other about. So, um, but it's so that better life can come when we do it, when we do things God's way. So um, the second implication is this, it's often the case that we want the right things I think, I think in talking to a lot of you, I think that a lot of us want the right things, me, me included. Um, 
the issue is that we try to acquire the right things the wrong way. And that's what we see in these examples of, of the, the priests and what they're doing. And Jesus is, is he's calling out this indictment on them and saying, you're not doing it right. You need to get in line with um, the real peace that can only come through my kingdom. And so all I would say about that is this, the right thing done the wrong way becomes the wrong thing. Um, and that leads me to implication number three. At the end of all things, Jesus is basically saying there's only going to be one kingdom remaining, uh, and it's going to be his kingdom. And if we pursue that, um, we're going to be um, we're going to be in good shape. But he says if if we pursue what we perceive to be the right kingdom, but using the wrong methods, um, then we didn't have the right kingdom to begin with. And that matters. It matters that you grapple with that. Like you think you're living the life Jesus wants you to live because you're pursuing his kingdom. But his kingdom looks a certain way. It's one of the reasons why we say we are trying to be his disciples and we want to do the things he did for the reasons that he did them. And that's really that's a really important distinction because uh, maybe during the season of Lent you need to reflect on uh, what kingdom are you trying to pursue. The last implication is this. What kind of things could come uh, to life in us this resurrection season if what, what kind of things what kind of things could come to life to us in, in this resurrection season if we give up our pursuit of worldly power and worldly comfort and privilege um, there are if we give those things up there are amazing things that can come to life in us I would say that real life, true life, the life that Jesus offers begins not by, by having our own agenda, but by laying it down. And that's what, that's, that's what communion reminds us of as we transition into that time. I want to give you just a few words of thought on that. Uh, we have what's called an open table at our church for communion, which means if you believe in the, death, the life and death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, then we want you to celebrate uh, communion with us. And so I know that's hard hard to do when we're not all together. Um, and we have said in some of our announcements that if you'd like us to send you communion uh, cups, um, we will do that and we will do our best to, to mail those to you. But um, when it comes to communion, um, Jesus is knowing full well what's coming and the betrayals that he's going to experience. He takes that cup on the night that he was betrayed in that bread and he says, this is my body and this is my blood given for you. And I want you to do this in remembrance of me. So I want you to take some time now uh, before we, before you uh, participate in the last worship uh, praise song that we're going to sing, um, that you would spend some time in reflection and meditation and prayer, praying um, and, and asking God to reveal you in you the things that he wants to bring to life this season of Lent. Uh, because communion, the, as we are celebrating the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus, we are remembering what he has done for us, and it's an invitation for us to lay our lives down just like Christ did.